This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It is Monday, November 13th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, fashion mogul Peter Nygaard has been found guilty of sexual assault. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press recaps this story. As the colder months roll in, how do you maintain a healthy lifestyle? Ryan Van Prate shares his tips on how to maximize indoor spaces this winter. And where do you rank reasonable accommodation as an indicator of the company's inclusive culture? Denis Boudreau weighs in on his thoughts with that topic. So much more to come along with those conversations, but before we get to any of that, it's time for the top news stories of the day. And we begin overseas, where Canadians trapped in Gaza have successfully crossed into Egypt at the reopened Rafah border crossing. Najoud Al-Malise has the details. The update comes as the Rafah crossing reopened after a two-day closure, allowing foreign nationals to flee the war-torn territory. But not everyone with ties to Canada clear to leave Gaza has crossed the border. Global Affairs had previously confirmed 266 Canadian citizens, permanent residents and their families had been cleared to make the journey as of Friday. The Canadian Embassy in Egypt is assisting those who cross with transportation to Cairo as well as food and accommodation until they have arranged their travel plans. The latest tally of those fleeing Gaza comes in addition to 107 people who crossed the border last week. Nujura Mulis, Canadian Press, Ottawa. A summit aimed at ending plastic pollution is being held in Nairobi. Donna Warder has that story. It's the third meeting in a series of an expected five on putting together an agreement to reduce world pollution created by plastics. The first two meetings were in Paris and Uruguay. Kenya is a global leader in fighting plastic pollution. And in 2017, the East African nation banned the manufacture, sale and use of single-use plastic bags. Plastic is largely made from crude oil and natural gas, giving oil-producing countries and companies a large stake in any treaty. Norway and Rwanda are leading a high-ambition coalition of governments that want to end plastic pollution by 2040 by cutting production and limiting some chemicals used in making plastics. I'm Donna Water. And staying abroad, former uh, Brian, uh, British Prime Minister uh, David Cameron has returned to politics. Charles Dilladesma explains this unusual situation. Cameron has been appointed Foreign Secretary in a shake-up of the Conservative government that also saw the firing of divisive Home Secretary Suela Braverman. It's rare for a former leader and a non-lawmaker to take a senior government post. The government says Cameron will be appointed to Parliament's unelected upper chamber, the House of Lords. The move marks the return of a leader brought down by Britain's decision to leave the EU. Cameron had called the 2016 EU membership referendum confident the country would vote to stay in the bloc. He resigned the day after voters opted to leave. Charles de la Desma, London. 
And back here at home, rallies were held across the country yesterday, calling for an end to the Israel-Hamas war. Toronto rally organizer David Held says the turnout is a clear message of support for the Israeli-held uh, hostages who are still in captivity. Today, seeing thousands and thousands of people come out and stand with those hostages and say to them, we are here with you, we are here together, we are here as one people, is really incredibly powerful and important to us. And Michelle McQuig will share more details from these rallies in a few minutes. But before we get to any of that, we still have one more news story. And we're going back abroad with the Indian celebration of Diwali, which took place yesterday. Charles de la Desma shares in the festivities. Diwali is a Hindu festival symbolizing the victory of light over darkness. People take part in festive gatherings with drumming and prayers over a period of five days. Diwali is celebrated by socializing and exchanging gifts with family and friends, lighting earth and oil lamps and setting off fireworks as part of the celebrations. I'm Charles Diladesma. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the Daily Polls on Friday. We asked you, how are you marking Remembrance Day? Zero uh, percent of you said a large ceremony. No one wants to be in those big crowds. But that's fine. 33 percent of you said a small ceremony, something a bit more intimate, a bit more uh, kind of close to home. And then 66 percent of you said TV or radio broadcast. We also had... Some responses through Facebook. Carla wrote in saying, thinking about my parents and how November 11 ceremonies, I, how many I, uh, November 11 ceremonies I attended and why. We will remember them. Pearly Pigtails comments, ceremony at a local cenotaph. Two family members killed in World War II, one 18-year-old, the other 20. Neither of their bodies ever recovered. We will remember them. So thank you for writing in and sharing your thoughts on that poll. Today, we're going a bit lighter in the fair. So the 2023 Grey Cup, it will be held next, this upcoming Sunday in Hamilton. And Green Day is set to perform the halftime show. So I wanted to find out from you at home, should the Grey Cup use Canadian performers for the halftime show? Green Day is very famously American, a great American punk band, but an American band nonetheless. So I want to know, should the Grey Cup use Canadian performers for the halftime show? Yes, no, or I don't care. And you can be sure to vote on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on X, aka Twitter, at Accessible Media. But let's bring in Elizabeth Moeller and get her perspective on this. Oh, hello, Elizabeth. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, Alex. How are you this morning? I'm not too bad. So this is something that kind of really struck me because I'm really seeing a ton of advertisements for Green Day, playing yes. the halftime show for the Grey <laughs> Cup. Now also to the fact that the last two semifinal games were played this weekend. So the Grey Cup is next weekend. All the excitement there. But where do you land on this, Elizabeth? Should Green Day really be playing the Grey mm. Cup halftime show? 
I'm going to say I'm a bit of a purist. I'm sorry, but it's the CFL and we should be celebrating Canadian artistry. We should be celebrating emerging Canadian artists. I recognize and respect that we want a band that is going to have a very strong cross audience, cross diverse audience uh, engagement. I understand we want a band that's probably not too offensive, um, but we have lots of bands here at home uh, or lots of artists here at home. You know, I think of three of my favorite Shania Twain or Avril Lavigne or, um, you know, any number of artists here, Nickelback even. Okay. Don't judge me. I, I still like Nickelback, <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's an opportunity to showcase our artistry and our talent. And yes, I know Imagine Dragon played in what was it? 2014. And I know Lenny Kravitz played. I don't care. I'm a purist. I want our culture to be celebrated and recognized. And this is a perfect time to do it. Well, we have, I would say, you know, lots of people watching, thousands of people watching this game, right? So I, I don't know. I'm a purist. I say Canadian all the way. Oh, Canada. <laughs> oh, Canada, indeed. And see, <laughs> the, the one thing I will say, like, this is a big get. Like, Green Day is yeah, a huge sure. marquee band. And yes, they th are. there's got to be a lot of excitement for the fact that they are coming yeah. and playing this uh, halftime show. That yeah. said, I'm kind of... On the fence, slowly, on yeah. a, a bit more on your side, am I, Elizabeth. Am I swaying you? Am I well, swaying I, you? I, I was already kind of thinking, okay, maybe, maybe we should be a bit more embracing the Canadian music scene. You, you, you listed uh, a number of great acts that would would be perfectly at home performing the halftime yeah. show, and ex I think the Grey Cup ex explicitly because of the fact that it is solely Canadian. It's not like the NHL or any of these other exactly. leagues where you're, you have Canadian and American teams playing together. This is just Canadian. This is the largest Canadian-only league we have. So why not try to let's celebrate? Let's show our pride. Let's show our pride. We have great artists. Maybe, you know, let's show people what what wonderful artists we have. This is an opportunity for pride, I think. So I am, I am, uh, I'm a purist. I will, I will stick with my original answer. So who would be then your dream get for a oh, halftime show? Well, definitely Drake. Um, <laughs> don't judge me. You know, I, I'm, uh, and I like like classic Drake, like his right. newer stuff I can, I can handle, but a classic Drake for me all the way. Um, his song, um, you know, headlines, I would say that's exactly what, what I would want to see. Now, some mm. people might disagree with me, but I'm Drake all the way. You know, for me, you? You, you did mention Nickelback. I think Nickelback would be the perfect yeah. band for the I Great Time Half Sun. Especially in like a place like Hamilton, you know, they they love yeah. their rock. They 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 have a bit more of that working class, that, that hard rock kind yeah. of energy to Hamilton and Tim Hortons Field. Or even to really pair up, I, I know they performed whether it was last year or the year before, the Arkells come back to Hamilton, perform yes. in Tim Hortons Field. That would be another great uh, performance that you could have there. Monster Truck, another great local Hamilton, Toronto rock band, and maybe not as popular as some, uh, the other two I mentioned, but I, I also like the idea of celebrating the the music scene within these different places that you go, because you, you think of all the different uh, kind of venues where the Grey Cup would be held. You got Vancouver, you got Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Sask uh, uh, Saskatchewan, you get uh, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, like there's great bands in each one of these areas that you could really highlight, celebrate, and and really kind of 
pay homage to the place. Right. Of a band from the city Mm -hmm. where you're actually maybe doing the game. So like, I really like a band called Vancouver sleep clinic, which ironically is out of Vancouver. Um, or now this is a, this is one that's kind of fun. The wilderness of Manitoba actually is not from Manitoba. They're, they're actually started in some band members basement in Toronto, but they love the name. So if you could pick band members that were from where you're going to have the event and then really showcase it, I think that would be super cool. Perfect. Elizabeth, don't go anywhere. I will be coming well, back to you anywhere. throughout the, the show, <laughs> but thank you for chiming in and thank you uh, for uh, voting on the poll. And I want everyone at home to vote on the poll as well. Should Canadian artists be playing the Grey Cup? Yes, no, I don't care. Vote again, Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. On Twitter or X at Accessible Media. Coming up next, Fashion mogul Peter Nygaard has been found guilty of sexual assault. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press recaps that story. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Knight, in for Dave. There were a number of stories making headlines this weekend. Here to help break it all down is Michelle McQuig. Michelle is the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you doing? Good. Just fine, thanks. Yeah, so it, as I said, there was, there was a lot of stories that uh, kind of really captured headlines this weekend. But the first uh-huh. one to, <laughs> to talk about today is regarding disgraced fashion mogul Peter Nygaard. He has been found guilty of sexual assault. What are the details here around his case and trial? Yes, he, he certainly was. Uh, so the, he, this is the first of several trials that he's going to be facing. This one took place in Toronto and he was charged with six counts. There were five, oh, there were ultimately five counts of sexual assault and one count of forcible confinement that were at issue in this trial. He was convicted yesterday after five days of deliberation from the jury. He was convicted on four of the sexual assault counts. He was acquitted on the fifth one and the forcible confinement charge. But uh, the fact remains that he still has four convictions now and he will quite likely be facing some jail time over this. And so what were some of the key moments from this trial? Um, it was a pretty harrowing trial. <laughs> Chatting with my, my colleagues who covered it, there were a lot of, of really... Uh, painful stories from from complainants who took the stand uh, and, and told their stories, but there was a pattern that emerged and that was part of the evidence that the Crown, part of the case that the Crown was making. Uh, the, the main highlights were that the five different women had all told similar stories about being asked to come to uh, Nygaard headquarters. Uh, this is the, the fashion empire that he once uh, owned. Um, they have the headquarters in Toronto, and all five women reported being asked to come down to headquarters on any reasons based, you know, from from job interviews to tours of the facilities to modeling opportunities, you name it. Um, all five women alleged that all these uh, pretexts to get them to the headquarters ultimately led them to a private suite that was locked and all ended in non-consensual sexual activity. Uh, obviously, we can we it's a bit tricky we, we we can't say conclusively because in one case there's still allegations because he was acquitted uh but obviously the jury bought that evidence there were also some really uh 
hard details to hear, such as the fact that one of the complainants who came forward and told her story said that after her, her encounter with Nygaard, another woman who was present at the time slipped her an emergency contraceptive as she walked out the door. Uh, so these were the sorts of accounts that were, were coming forward from the victims. And so what has the reaction been so far with the, the news that he has been convicted of sexual assault? Yeah, well, uh, obviously the Crown is delighted. They're talking about justice being served. Uh, an interesting piece of reaction actually came from Peter Nygaard's son, Kai Nygaard. Uh, he has been a fairly prominent voice speaking out against his dad for a few years. Um, he, he has positioned himself as a whistleblower. Um, but he he was another one who was speaking yesterday and, and celebrating the verdict and feeling that it was justice served. Um, on Peter Nygaard's side, his defense lawyer is Brian Greenspan, and uh, his comments were, were fairly routine, but uh, he, they are considering whether or not to go ahead with an appeal is where they stand on that front. And then lastly, as as the fact that he's he's been convicted, obviously the next step is a sentencing trial. Has, right. has that date been set yet, or are we still waiting for details on sentencing? No, we have no details on sentencing yet. Uh, no dates, never mind any sense of what the sentence might be. Uh, I, I, and I must confess, I, I have not dug into the uh, the statutes to see what uh, convictions of four counts of sexual assault might yield in terms of jail time. But another really interesting component to watch on this particular file is just the fact that there are several other cases against mm -hmm. Peter Nygaard, all centering around similar types of allegations, sexual assault. Uh, he's got active cases in, in Manitoba and in Quebec and in the United States. Now, none of those cases have yet gone before the courts and none of the allegations have been tested. Uh, but this uh, this case might set a template for how things will proceed. Absolutely. So we'll leave that uh, news story there for now until there's more details to discuss. But let's move on to another, unfortunately, really uh, tough uh, a situation that's been unfolding yeah. in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war taking place that there's been a rise in anti-Semitic attacks taking place in Montreal. What details do you have on this story, Michelle? Yeah, I should preface this by saying that there's been a rise in anti-Semitic attacks everywhere, not just in Montreal, but the most high-profile ones in Canada have been taking place in Montreal recently. Uh, last week, some of you may recall, uh, two synagogues got firebombed and a couple of Jewish schools were shot at over the course of the week. Uh, I regret to inform you that yesterday, one of those same Jewish schools was attacked for a second time in three days. Uh, there were more shots fired at it. There were bullets recovered at the scene. Fortunately, nobody was injured. Uh, but this is uh, one of many such attacks that are going up. And we've seen this evidence of this all over the place. Uh, Toronto police is beefing up their hate crime unit because of a massive spike since October 7th when, when this particular war got underway. Um, lots of a, a person was arrested over the weekend, a, a an Ottawa man arrested near Toronto allegedly for inciting hatred towards Jews. Uh, so th these are these are mounting incidents, and it's causing tremendous fear and anxiety within the Jewish community. And it's also, I feel, worth noting that there has also been a massive rise in um, anti-Islamic attacks as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, building on this tension over the weekend, I, I played a, a clip in the uh, the first segment just highlighting some of the rallies and the marches that took place in, and mm -hmm. that one was from Toronto, but there were marches across the country. So uh, what were uh, some, like what took place in uh, at these protests, these rallies uh, yesterday? Sure, yeah, I, I would urge everyone to read a piece by my colleague, Chris Reynolds, uh, assembled with help from my other colleague, Naira Ahmed, who was attending the rally in Toronto. Uh, so the, the two 
big ones were eight was one was a one for coalition for ceasefire now uh, this was a pro-palestinian rally that took place in 50 cities across the country so i'm not sure about the turnout everywhere but certainly in toronto and in montreal it drew thousands of people and it was taking place in everywhere from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland up to Yellowknife. So there were tons of protests all organized by the same group uh, calling for a ceasefire and asking for the ceasing of hostilities in the Middle East. Um, and on the other side of the conflict, we had a, a very, very big rally yesterday supporting Israel at Christie Pitts, which, of course, is a very significant historical site for the Jewish community. Uh, scene of a riot in 1933 when they were combating anti-Semitism and some of the comments coming out of that riot, or excuse me, some of the rally yesterday were, uh, were talking about how they feel like they're turning back the clock uh, 90 years ago to to where they stood now based on the what we were talking about before, the spike in anti-Semitic violence. So that riot, that rally, gosh, I got to stop doing it. Um, but yesterday's rally at Christie Pitts in support of Israel was was focused primarily on calling for the release of the 240 plus hostages who are still detained by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, well, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more developments on on the stories, these conflicts, and unfortunately, I'm sure there's going to be more news reports on. Uh, on, on hate attacks as as the week goes on. Uh, but we will leave uh, this story here for now. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time. It's the end of your week. Go home, enjoy your your, <laughs> your weekend, so to speak, and uh, we'll check you. in with you on Friday. And hopefully with with some some lighter and, and happier yeah, news I'll for that. I'll try to be a bit less of a downer for everyone yeah, on exactly. Friday on the panel. <laughs> have a good day, Have Michelle. a good week, Alex. Yeah, take, take care. care. That was Michelle McQuaig, who is the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, where do you rank reasonable accommodation as an indicator of a company's inclusive culture? Denis Boudreau weighs in with his thoughts. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Reasonable accommodation is a big part of the inclusive employment landscape. Reasonable accommodation is an adjustment or modification that allows an employee with a disability to do their job. Accommodations can be physical or a bit less tangible. Denis Boudreau wrote a blog post about reasonable accommodation, and Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication, and he joins us now. Good morning, Denis. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good morning. So where do you rank reasonable accommodation as an indicator of a company's inclusive culture, Denis? Uh, it's one of the key points, I believe, in, in determining whether or not a workplace is going to be as inclusive as you might hope it would be or has the uh, the company might might actually pretend that they are bit of a litmus uh, litmus test i would say even um i mean if you if you um if if you can't you know, perform at your highest level because the environment in which you're operating prevents you from doing that it's a pretty significant barrier to your success and your contribution to the workplace so providing these reasonable accommodations and and how making sure that everyone can thrive is really 
a found like a foundation piece of building a workplace where where people can can you know be themselves and bring their best their best selves to work. Absolutely. So, what would be some of the biggest misconceptions surrounding reasonable accommodations? Well, the first one that comes to mind is probably that you know a lot of leaders are afraid that if they provide these accommodations to people, these folks are going to be perceived as they're like like a teacher's pet, for instance, and you know, prefer preferred employees or, or giving other people favors and things like that, which of course is, is shouldn't be nothing like that. It really it's really just about you know leveling the playing field and allowing people to again you know bring their best their best selves to work and contribute. Another uh, misconception is certainly about the fact that it's going to be very costly to do so. And there's there's a really interesting report from uh, Ask Jan. Uh, from 2023, I think, or 2022, I can't remember now, but talking about how more than half of the accommodations at work actually cost nothing. It's just like rethinking and being creative about offering different ways to help people to, to thrive. And then the average amount of, of dollars spent on most of the other accommodations was around $300 per, per accommodation. So while we think, it's kind of like accessibility in general, I'd say even, I mean, most people think that, you know, making your website accessible or providing this or that to different people is going to be very costly. While in reality, most of the time it's not. It's just a matter of being open to flexibility and offering options that will work better for people. So what would a like straightforward example of a reasonable accommodation look like? Well, flexible hours, flexible working hours, as an example, the ability to work from home, the ability to provide your like use use different software that will help you uh, be more efficient at your at um, at work. Rethinking the tasks that are being assigned to different people based on you know their strengths and and their weaknesses. Um, rethinking the notion of breaks and and allowing for people to maybe have breaks if they need medication for different like things like that. Uh, like quiet space is another example, reconfiguring the workspace so that it works better for you. If you're like, as an example, if you, uh, if you are in an open space and, um, and you have vestibular dis dis disorders, for instance, having a lot of people going back and forth might be very disorienting or nauseating even sometimes. So having like reorganizing the furniture so you don't get to see as many of those folks around you, or maybe being in an area where there is less people that are moving might also be an example of how you could accommodate and none of those things would actually cost you anything except you know rethinking and spending a bit of time uh thinking about what might what might work well for for your your people um some awareness training again you know raising awareness around these uh, these challenges and how we can all contribute to helping others also enjoy themselves at work and you know bring their best qualities are all things that we could we could think about. And so how much of these accommodations and, and uh, how much should they be uh, proactively done or, or how much should they be reactive? It's probably a blend of both. Uh, I would say that the more the more we we enjoy open conversation and discussions uh, in in the workplace, the more we can be proactive about what the needs are going to be. Um, so definitely, you know, having these conversations, like <clears throat> most people have one-on-one -on -one conversations with their with their managers, 
So being able to create an environment, and again, you know, a lot of that is on the leader's responsibilities or, or shoulders, but creating this environment where people feel safe enough to you know, come up with certain challenges that they might face so that you can have a conversation about how to best address those things um, would eventually lead to being proactive about some of the difficulties that people might be running into. And in, inevitably, in, in some cases, you, you might discover after the fact that something actually doesn't work, and then you'll be reacting to that particular challenge that was brought up. And again, you know, having an open mind and and thinking creatively about how we can address the particular uh, challenge could also be just as good. The um, the one thing I would say is that if everything is always addressed in reaction to someone bringing a particular challenge that they face then it probably feels like the onus of having to sort of bear the weight of the accommodation is then on the employee's shoulders. And that would be a clear sign for me of, of a lack of an insight in terms of the leadership into you know, paying attention to how their employees are, are you know, how they're, 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 they're going within, within the business. And, and that would need to be addressed so that people are more proactive about these things. Should there still be some onus on the employee themselves, though, especially if they have the lived experience, they they have the knowledge of what works best for them in, in different environments? To, is the onus on them to bring that knowledge forward so that they can present it to their employers that they can then address it accordingly? To a certain extent, I would say yes. Um, you know, in an ideal world, which we don't live in, clearly, um, you know, every workplace would have already defined a certain number of you know ground rules, house rules around making sure that certain accommodations are there by default. That is rarely the case. Um, it's pretty hard to, to help someone who is not being open about what their needs are. So of course, if the employee is not willing to disclose certain challenges that they face or certain needs that they have in order to really thrive, then it might be hard for uh, their manager to actually you know think or, or come up with a solution for that. So I think it's a it's a shared responsibility clearly. Um, but again, for for an employee to be comfortable disclosing these things, the environment needs to lend itself for that. And and so while it is a shared responsibility, and what I, while I think that the responsibility well definitely shared between between uh, all parties involved, it can only really happen if the workplace to begin with has established a certain level of, of a safe zone for people to bring up those things. Otherwise, it, it, it could hardly work. I have a hard time imagining people who are who maybe have faced stigma, discrimination, prejudice in other workplaces before would spontaneously think about talk about those things because their lived experience indicates that if they do, they might, you know, they might they might pay the cost for that. So a lot of people are just going to mask and, and not measure anything and try to do their best to uh, to 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 still uh, work through through the challenges. So yeah, I mean, shared responsibility definitely. Well, and I, I think, uh, and really at the heart of this conversation, what I hear from you in terms of, you know, the the suggestions and, and uh, examples of what reasonable accommodations look like. Okay, it looks like flexible work hours or rearranging the the workspaces, things like that. To me, it, it comes across as something as if there is a, a good, open communication relationship with your manager, your supervisor, that, that comfortable space, if you have a good manager who is going to 
treat you as an individual and not just as part of this is the team, this is uh, all the people I, I, I have to uh, oversee or manage, that if you take an individual approach, this is where that success is going to happen, that flexibility, that individualized approach to meet everyone's needs so that they can be the most effective in the workplace they can be. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. The, um, the very idea that it would be, you know, the employee's responsibility to come forward and disclose all those things, and then you take all the risks and maybe, you know, like, uh, you know, butt heads with a manager who just doesn't get it or is too busy to pay attention to that because they have a million other things on their mind. It, it certainly is not conducive to people feeling like, you know, they're safe and, and, and comfortable enough to talk about these very personal things oftentimes. So if you have someone, if you have, like, and it also depends on disabilities, right? I mean, if you, if you think about like very visible ones, you know, being in a wheelchair, being blind as an example, uh, oftentimes you would expect, you know, your leadership to be more proactive because they can, I mean, they, they know some of these things, but since 80% of disabilities are invisible and, and, you know, for a lot of the, the folks that have them, you would not know unless they told you then part of the responsibility then is shared so that we can we can sort of see it and and be aware of it um and and that makes all the difference yeah and i just think back to my own uh past experience in in the workforce you know obviously living with vision loss hearing loss i even when i was being like in it as an intern in in different media organizations it's like you you feel very very much vulnerable you just want to fit in and be in the uh, best spot to help especially because you know intern you're at the very introductory the lowest level you don't want to maybe be too known or too uh, uh uh vocal in terms of your your needs and requirements are but it's like if you have a uh, a manager who is open or or aware of the needs that you may have then you can have that space to kind of really explain things. Because I remember there were some instances where my desk would literally be in front of an open, bright window, and I would have the sun shining in to my eyes every single day. And as someone who uh, struggles with light sensitivity, it's not exactly the most conducive for pro uh, productivity. But, you know, it's also learning to self-advocate, but also learning to be aware of, oh, this isn't actually, this environment is not setting me up for success as well. Right. I mean, it, it, a lot of managers will will be will be have this thinking that you know if you need something, you'll you'll come up and talk about it. And and of course, you have to build that courage. You have to build that confidence. So as you were saying, if you're if you're new to a new, if you're in a new place or if you're just starting your career and you're younger, you haven't quite yet built the confidence to do, to say those things, do those things. You're you might be afraid to be singled out for you know a bunch of reasons, most of which are probably very valid because. They're, they're based on lived experiences from the past that, you know, I've just demonstrated to you that when you disclose those things, nothing good really comes out of that. So why would you do that in a place where you're even more, you know, um, you're, you're, um, you're, you're not, you're not at your best in the terms that you don't have all, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to, like, you're more, not sensitive, but you're you're in a weaker spot so to speak mm -hmm. i mean you depend on the the workplace for you know your 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 income and your and your, your way of living therefore you have to be very careful and you don't want to take any chances and you certainly don't want to rub anyone the wrong way so you want to make as few waves as possible and asking for things like special favors as what a lot of people would would consider them to be 
is certainly very, you know, it's it's stressful for someone to to even come up with those things. And uh, so unless your environment, you know, lends itself to you feeling very comfortable with this, I don't see how or why most people would even take that chance. And unfortunately, it leads to people having to deal, spending a lot more energy, working a lot harder than others would to achieve the same kind of results, sometimes achieve uh, lesser results because the, the, the environment is just not helping them thrive the way that they could otherwise. And it's, it's just sad. And, and you know, educating, so this, which is why you know, educating leadership and, you know, managers, people managers in general about what this means, what the you know, reasonable accommodations, accommodations mean, and just, just, you know, disability inclusion in general in the workplace, uh, can make a huge difference. I mean, some people will never really care about it, but a lot of people, you know, they, they're they're just waiting to know to care and and really you know, put all of their heart and soul into it. But if they were never you know faced with these questions before, I can't really blame them for not being proactive about it. If you don't know, you don't know. Uh, but most people, you know, are good people, and they're they're going to want to help you succeed because it's also in their best interest that you do. So when you, when you realize that these accommodations are going to be as simple as maybe like moving your desk so that you're not so close to that window, or maybe providing you know uh, shades or, or or you know just changing the the organization of the, the the workspace so that it's no longer a challenge for you, for instance, is not complicated. I mean, you know, it's a Saturday morning, yeah. you know, moving a couple of furniture around, and then all of a sudden it makes a huge difference in your life and and your productivity rises as a result of that. And the entire team, as a result of that, also benefits from that added you know, productivity. So all these things are very positive. And also, too, you feel much better and you gain more respect and trust in your manager as a result. So oh, yeah, uh, it's a relationship. Yeah, know, absolutely. Denis, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you. You as well. Okay, that was Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller shares the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute. A strong performance by energy stocks last Friday helped to lift Bay Street to a positive close. Toronto's S&P TSX gained 67 points to close at 19,654. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average added 391 points, settling at 34,283, while the Nasdaq rose 277 points, closing at 13,798. Asian markets were mostly flat this morning, with Japan's Nikkei finishing up at an even 17 points at 32,585. The Hang Seng, though, in Hong Kong, looking pretty good. It closed up 223 points at 17,426. The annual Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference kicks off this week, with all eyes on U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping as they get set to meet face-to-face. As for the looting, it's trading at 72.40 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. And now it's time to take a look at the biggest story in the day for weather with Elizabeth Moeller. 
Okay, Elizabeth, it's uh, been a stormy weekend in BC and you wanted to kind of sure pick up the pieces has. from that storm. <laughs> yes, literally pick up the pieces. A storm was a brewing. Um, Canada is going to be on the receiving end of a very gratifying gift this week, but unfortunately, it's at the expense of BC. So thank you, BC, but sorry. Uh, a big storm hit British Columbia over the weekend and it caused problems for many people. However, the silver lining is that this storm is bringing warm weather to the rest of Canada heading east this week. In British Columbia, about 200,000 BC Hydro customers lost power due to strong winds during the storm that hit over the weekend. And now that same weather system is making its way across the country and it's bringing higher temps as it goes. That warm air is gonna move from the Rocky Mountains to the prairies today. And then it's going to come over to Ontario Ontario and Quebec Wednesday and Thursday, and then land in Atlantic Canada on Friday and Saturday. Temperatures are going to be higher than usual, around 5 to 10 degrees, and in some cases, even a little bit into the mid-teens. And those warmest spots are expected to be in southwestern Ontario. And while it will be warm, it won't be shorts and teachers weather because after all, it is November, so don't get too excited. Just keep that in mind as you're getting ready to head out. And we can expect temperatures to trampoline up and down for the the rest of this month. Elizabeth, I think you need to speak for yourself uh, that it's not shorts weather out here. I <laughs> okay. mean, well, as soon as All you get right. into the teens, you know, hey, maybe. Okay, maybe running. If I'm running, shorts yeah. for sure if I'm running outside. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But not why. Not, not just regular going outside. But if I'm going for a run, maybe. Fair enough. Maybe. Fair enough. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. We'll check <laughs> in with welcome. you after the break with the entertainment report, so you don't go anywhere. But coming up next, all the light we cannot see is trending across Canada on Netflix. Amy Amanti reviews the limited series. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Trending at top at the top of Netflix Canada is all the light we cannot see. A few weeks ago, Dave interviewed the show's accessibility consultant. Today, the conversation continues. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti has some thoughts on the show and will share her uh, review. But before I welcome her in, let's take in a clip from the show's trailer. A woman powers up a transmitter. Ladies and gentlemen. Vacuum tubes light, needles bounce, a white cane taps cobblestones. Before I begin my broadcast today, I have something to say. An old man listens on headphones. In this time of darkness. Nazis march through Paris. Of invading cities. I'm trying to remember. Light lasts forever. Bombers approach a burning town. Darkness lost. Darkness lost not not even for one second. A young German soldier listens. When you turn on the light, I know that broadcasting could get me executed. Bombs drop amid flak and explosions. A blast wave tears through the broadcaster's room. But I will not be silenced. She sets her microphone back up. I hope you will tune in again tomorrow. She powers down the transmitter. 
That was a clip from All the Light We Cannot See. Let's welcome in Amy Amanti. Hello, Amy. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Alex. Happy Monday. Doing okay. Braved the storm that you were all just talking about. Yeah, that's in, uh, in BC. I'm I'm glad to hear you're okay and you're you're, you're still in one piece. So, still Amy, in one piece have, have power. Yeah, exactly. That's the two very important things. Now, focusing in on this series, you have a special connection to it because you actually auditioned for this series. What was that initial draw for you to audition? Uh, well, I, you know, they did a global search for this particular character. Obviously, I did not get cast in the role, and appropriately so. Um, you know, I think they they auditioned thousands of people across the globe uh, for this particular robe. So I was just uh, one of the many numbers of blind actors who auditioned for this particular role. Um, I auditioned for anything that is related to a blind character. That is kind of how it rolls when you audition for blind characters. They want to see everybody who identifies as blind or partially sighted, whether or not you sort of tick the box. And this particular character um, is a, a teen, probably 17, 18 years old at this point. Um, and, you know, uh, the actor that plays her is 30 years old. So, you know, it just you, you never know how you're going to be cast. Now, central to this story is the character Marie Law that uh, who uh, plays a a French girl, a blind French girl, and you've talked about authentic casting. You you mentioned it just there in terms of the need to make sure that you're finding someone who has that experience, that lived experience, to to inhabit that role. In this movie, there are two actors playing the role of Marie Laure as the series flashes back and forth from both childhood and then her teenage years, and both those actors are legally blind. Neil Sutton, uh, Nell Sutton, is the child actor and. Aria Maria Liberti is the teenager. So how did these two first-time actors perform? They were pretty darn good. I mean, the thing about first-time actors, for some first-time actors, is that they don't have any bad habits to break, which is interesting. You know, you know, as, a, as classically trained actors that we see on TV all the time, Sometimes there are egos that you have to break down. Sometimes there's overperforming that you have to break down. Um, and sometimes there are just habits that you have to break down. And so when you are uh, not a classically trained actor, there is none of that that you have to break down. And so I think that that's what's kind of being exhibited here in these two first time performers, which I thought they did really well for not um, essentially being trained on the job. Right, because they'll get that training in, on the job with uh, coaches um, while they're sort of uh, going through rehearsal periods. And so, what did you learn about uh, the actor who who played the character as a teenager, Aria Marie Lobert? Okay, so Liberty um, is is uh, a really interesting human. As I mentioned, she's born in 1994, so she's 30 years old, playing a teenager. So obviously, you know, we don't typically have teenagers playing teenagers because some of the roles are quite mature, right? We have mature people playing teenagers. Um, uh, this is very, very typical in, in Hollywood. But I wanted to read you some of the things that, that Liberty had done before becoming uh, cast in this role, because I think just in terms of blindness empowerment is good for people to know um, where she'd been. So she uh, is a graduate of Rhodes, uh, University of Rhode Island. Um, she graduated summa cum laude um, with three majors, three majors, oh. Oh boy. philosophy, communications, 
um, communication studies and political science with minors in ancient Greek language and rhetoric. <gasps> Can you imagine? Okay. So then she also completed, uh, she completed that in her honors. Uh, um, then she received a master's degree in ancient rhetoric uh, with distinction. Then she started her doctoral studies in ancient rhetoric at the University of Pennsylvania. So like totally an academic, right? Yeah, and then yeah. in 2021, she began to question her career path. And it was at that time that this sort of casting opportunity came up. But she's also quite an active um, human rights activist. Um, she's been a public speaker about um, accessible education. Um, she's d done a, a TEDx talk. She's uh, been a, a speaker with the UN um, uh, and the UN's Women's Division and is quite active with UNICEF. So she's done quite a lot of things in her young life so far. And I, I think it was it was really important for me to highlight some of the thing, these things because, you know, the stigmatization around uh, blindness and disability in general, that we're all sort of sitting around drawing disability benefits um, that that we are working engaged intelligent academic people many of us a lot of us right and so um i think the world needs to uh, to know these things about who we are as as individuals um, so I think it's important to highlight some of these things. Yeah, and uh, you know, make everyone else kind of feel like, oh, maybe I could have been doing more instead of just sitting on on the couch playing my games or or going to school for one degree instead of three majors and two minors and, and, two, yeah. and then the masters and the PhD and everything like that, top of the class. Very impressive. Okay, but let's let's bring the conversation back to the series itself. So. Let's talk about the audio description. What stood out to you about the description in this series? So the thing about the description in a series like this is because we have, and I use the term blindness culture, mm. um, you know, blindness culture has a, a certain element to it, right? We, we're cane users or we're guide dog users. Um, you know, we do things in, in a certain way that the general public doesn't do things or doesn't understand how we do things. This is the culture element. And so, um, as a as a, a uh, somebody who's watching or listening or witnessing what's happening, I want to know these elements um, from the perspective of a blind character. So I want my describer to tell me how she's using her cane, um, when she's switching her her hand back and forth, how she's opening a door, like. And these things may sound silly to some folks, but this is the blindness culture element that gets missed out in representation. And so I thought that the audio description did a really great job in finding these moments where we could include this so that I was like, oh yeah, okay, um, this is really important for me to know how she's navigating the city, for example. Um, so I thought that the audio description did an excellent job in pointing out these particular things. And so do you recommend others hit play on this series, Amy? You, you've watched it, you, you, you talked about the audio description. What should uh, people take away? Are, are, are they in the right to go and seek it out and press play? Well, I, there are some really great um, things about this, this uh, series in general that I think people will really, really enjoy. It's um, great audio description. There's some really great um, moments in this uh, series in general. It's really low on stigmatization, which is lovely from a blind perspective. And, you know, one of the great things about representation is that, you know, what is Liberty going to be doing 
after this series. And, and just so folks know, just in September, she was named the uh, public face of the skincare brand L'Occitane uh, in uh, uh, France and is now going to be the new narrator of the uh, a new audiobook, not a new audiobook, but a new version of the Jules Verne uh, uh, 20 Leagues Under, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is the book that she is reading uh, publicly uh, on broad broadcast in this film. So she's going to be the narrator of the book, a new version of this book. So I would say yes, absolutely hit play on this one. It's a, a lovely version. If, if you've read the book, it's a bit different than the book, um, than the series, but we always have to look at uh, you know, books and TV and movie and plays all as sort of their own different type of entertainment, right? We can't really compare apples to apples because they're apples and oranges and bananas and kiwi fruit, right? So um, <laughs> keeping that in mind, it's really hard to compare one to the other. So looking at it as its own entity, I think will really, um, really draw folks in. Perfect. Amy, thank you so much for for uh, coming on early and, and chatting about uh, this series with me. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. Okay, that was Amy Amanti, the entertainment critic based in Vancouver, BC, and she reviewed the limited series, All the Light We Cannot See, and it is streaming on Netflix. In a minute, Elizabeth Moeller will share the entertainment report, but first, the Dodge Ram is making the jump to electric. Sort of. Here's reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. The Ram 1500 Ram Charger is a series hybrid, says Auto Week editor Natalie Neff. It has a generator and battery pack on board. It has a Pentastar V6 on board, but the engine does not ever directly drive the wheels. Instead, the V6 is solely designed to generate electricity. So it drives the generator, and the generator's job is to either charge the onboard battery or drive the wheels. Neff says it's intended to cut down on EV range anxiety. What this is all you to do is drive like a full EV for 145 miles, at which point the engine will make sure that you won't get stranded. Total range is just under 700 miles, though that could shrink when towing or hauling. But when it comes to capability, payload and towing capacity rival the standard RAM. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. And so now it's time for the entertainment report with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth. The 2024 Grammy nominations are finally here. They are absolutely finally here. Um, they this is they've been announced for the 66th Grammy Awards that are coming up in February, and the best traditional pop vocal album category has really evolved over the years, and it's included nominations of Bruce Springsteen. Ricky Lee Jones, and a personal favorite of mine, Joni Mitchell. And that really reflects the broadening focus of this category. This year, interestingly enough, there are three new categories that are going to be emerging. Best African Music Performance, Best Alternative Jazz Album, and Best Pop Dance Recording. And these changes are part of efforts to make the Grammy Awards process more fair and transparent and accurate and inclusive. So Alex, I wanted to uh, chat with you about this pop category a little bit, because I'm trying to wrap my head around pop here, hoping you can yeah. kind of help me out. So in what ways do you see the best traditional pop vocal album category embracing a more advanced or perhaps changing definition of pop music? Well, I, I think that um, pop very much for many, many years, at least in my mind, has always been, okay, this is something that is 
basically designed, developed, created in a studio. You, you get synth tracks, you get basically a singer, and then you get this creation of these kind of other sounds that may not be done directly by the artist, but more of a producer in, in that regard. Whereas, like, you list kind of uh, some of these different other um, artists, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Joni Mitchell. Like, yeah. these these are true artists who yeah. Are, yeah. Are, are creating music that is popular. And, and by yeah. the very definition, pop is short for popular music. Yes. So now they, they may have fallen under rock or other categories in the past. I think still Bruce Springsteen would fall under rock. But it, it shows that, okay, they're understanding that, you know, pop music can take on a broader definition than just kind of that that catchy rhythmic beat and a single vocalist or a boy band kind of approach to what pop music has been at least for many years in my mind. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to say that because when I think about pop music, like traditionally I think of, you know, sort of very light, like Michael Bublé comes to mind mm. like right away when I think of pop music or like, you know, maybe um, Celine Dion. But Joni Mitchell to me, like I've always grown up knowing Joni Mitchell as folk. And so it's interesting too because they even talk about pop dance. And if you if you go on Apple Music, you see all these categories. You see soft pop, pop dance, pop workout. And it's really, it's, it's interesting that it's starting to evolve to sort of become more all-encompassing. So like you said, like anything that that's really um, popular, but it's starting to kind of evolve other in, involve other genres. Like even I'm seeing some pop country out there as well. Yeah, well, and, and that's that's a key point too because I, I think it's also the idea of music is just kind of it, it evolves over time. And what what is in the cultural zeitgeist? What is at the forefront and, and everyone's listening to changes. I mean, the 2000s, you saw a lot of that, that either dance and rock mm -hmm. were, were kind of in the alternative rock. Those were really at the forefront. Now you're getting countries really taking hold along with rap and hip hop is really kind of at that forefront. And you're not seeing some of these other uh, genres that used to be very uh, kind of popular, for lack of a better word, in this conversation. So I, I, I like that evolution, that change, and, and trending with the times. Yeah, and, and you know, these three categories, I, I just want to kind of talk about those for a minute, because I wonder, you know, how do you see these new categories influencing the music industry and, you know, giving representation to artists who might not have been represented in, in previous Grammys? Because these are, these, are, um, these are brand new, these three categories that I've mentioned. Yeah, so it was uh, Best African Music Performance, Best Alternative Jazz Album, and Best yes. Pop Dance Recording. I think yes. we're still I working think, out what pop dance is. Yeah, well, and but I, I think that helps separate it, right? Because as we talked about, pop was kind of a bit all-encompassing. Now that you've kind of separated, okay, pop dance, now you can really focus in and you can uh, narrow that focus into, okay, this is what really fits within this category. I, I agree, too. African music, okay, we're, we're trying to expand it into a bit more openness to cultural, because people love to listen to African music as well, but it rarely gets that love. It, it, it doesn't have, it didn't have its own category before. So as a result, you can shine a light and, and you can let a broader audience also discover music that they may not have been exposed to before. Because if you see an artist that's won a Grammy, well, you're more likely to go and check them out, exactly. even if it's a, in a genre that you're not familiar with. So I think it's really going to help uh, broaden the scope and, and expose people to new artists and new music, which is always a good thing.
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think I would say, too, that I think there really are making some strides around representation. I mean, we know, too, that last year they had they had um, sign language for the first time and are um, working working uh, towards audio description. So I think these are all things that are really showing that this process is becoming more inclusive. And that was one of the, the really key points when they put in these three categories is to look at how can we make this more fair and inclusive and, and to show people that are uh, at home watching that, you know, they are or their communities are represented as a part of the grant. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth, we have to uh, let you go for now, but thank you so much. You and bet. we'll, we'll check in it. with you later on in the show for the roundtable. You bet. Take care, Alex. Okay, that was Elizabeth Moeller with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, I got the regional news update. And Brock Richardson is here for a sports chat. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. TV and on audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. It's Monday, November 13th, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, tech company Humane has launched an AI pin. Sean Priest tells you all about it. And as the colder months roll in, how do you maintain a healthy lifestyle? Ryan Van Praet shares tips on how to maximize indoor spaces this winter. All that and more coming up. But first, we start with a short regional news update. In B British Columbia, an infectious disease specialist says patients in the province have less access to an HIV drug than other provinces. Rob Westgate files this report. Dr. Brian Conway says he's puzzled as to why the BC Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS gets the final say on who gets the drug called Cabinuva and not the prescribing physician. He says the center declined approval of the drug for all 15 patients he has applied for since the spring. Now, a spokesman for the center says it has received 39 applications for Cabinuva since last year and 15 of them have been approved while 11 are still pending and 13 were withdrawn or have not been processed for other reasons. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. And that's it for the regional news. Now time for Sports Chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, it was a very busy weekend for football fans, both north of the border and south of the border. Let's start, though, with the CFL playoffs. We now have the Grey Cup matchup all set. We do. We saw the Montreal Alouettes uh, win 38-17 over the um, uh, Toronto Argonauts. And I have to say, Dave, or sorry, Alex, <laughs> that... Uh, uh, um, that this is a game that really happened over turnovers. Toronto really, really, truly shot themselves in the foot. They had uh, seven turnovers, whether it was turnovers on downs, where they would turn over the ball on uh, third down and it would go to Montreal, or they had about four or five uh, thrown interceptions by their quarterback. This was a mess of a game. If you're looking at it from a Toronto perspective, if we look at Montreal, 
yes, they had a 70% completion rate, but it was only an average of about three yards per completion. So this is probably not going to get it done against Zach Kalaros and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Your thoughts on the East final? So you're absolutely correct to mention just the sheer impact the defense for Montreal had on this game. The number of turnovers was really the deciding factor. But the thing that I was so shocked with, the game was still very much in reach into the third quarter. Like, Toronto could have still easily won this game because it was still within a 1-2 score differential in the, in the third before Montreal eventually blew the, the doors off the, the game and, and came away with a 38-17 win. But despite all those turnovers, Toronto did still have a chance, and I think that has to be at least somewhat concerning if you're Montreal heading into the Grey Cup against Winnipeg because of the fact that you know, you got all this um, kind of pressure, these turnovers, all this support from the defense, including two defensive touchdowns, but you couldn't get it really done on offense. So that is something that needs to be cleaned up going forward. But as you mentioned, Brock, on the, the West side of things, the, the West uh, Conference final, Winnipeg pulled out the win as well. Yeah, 24-13, uh, uh, and this marks the uh, fourth straight year that the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have gone to the Grey Cup. And uh, Brady Oliveira, their uh, receiver, really played a really amazing game and, and really led the way. They have this this real good system going on. They know where everybody is. They know what they're doing. They're good on the run. They're good on the pass. They're good everywhere. Uh, they, they even had a, a blocked punt. A blocked punt returned for a touchdown, which is uh, something uh, that that's good. Really, the only bright spot, if you're looking at BC, was they had a Hail Mary touchdown in the uh, later part of the first half where the ball was thrown for about 70 yards and then uh, caught in the end zone. But really, that was the only uh, bright spot for BC. And uh, yeah, that, that means we have a Montreal and a... Um, Winnipeg final, which will be very exciting. I will say this. I do think it's going to be a bit of a lopsided final, uh, but that's just my early prediction. Well, I, I will say that unlike with the East final, where you, despite the fact that uh, Winnipeg was getting all these turnovers, you know, they were still able to really move the ball on offense. They really applied the pressure on both sides of the ball. And then, as you mentioned, too, on to top it all off, you have a blocked uh, field goal for a touchdown. That's huge. I, I think, yeah, Winnipeg is a stronger team, unfortunately, for BC. This is the second year straight that Winnipeg has knocked them out in the, the Western final to, to advance to the Grey Cup. I, I'm really concerned about the Montreal offense, Brock. I don't think they, they're really going to have much of an answer for Winnipeg when it, when they show down and, and face off in Hamilton this Sunday. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm not even really sure that Montreal's defense will be able to hold up uh, like they did uh, against Toronto. I just, I don't see it. I think that it's going to be a pretty lopsided game. I've invited a friend of mine over for the Grey Cup, and we've kind of extended our get-together to to mix in with Sunday football because it's kind of like, eh, this might be a dud of a Grey <laughs> Cup. I hope I'm wrong, but yeah. it's, it's going to be an interesting game for sure. Okay, and speaking of Sunday NFL football, you wanted to recap some of the... the 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 good and not so good from uh, yesterday's matchups. Where did you want to start with this, Brock? Yeah, let's start with the New England Patriots uh, losing to the Indianapolis Colts 
10-6. Might I also say that that was a brutal game to showcase the NFL in uh, Germany, but I digress. I think the major story here was that the um, the New England Patriots quarterback, uh, Mac Jones, uh, was benched uh, in the last drive of the game, and they brought in uh, Bailey Zippy, who really has not um, played much snaps in the season at all and played much snaps uh, in practice either. And two-minute offense was not his thing. I think a lot of criticism came at the end of the game. They understand their frustration with Mac Jones. Uh, The New England Patriots have, you know, had a real tough start. They get it. But I kind of question, Alex, why we made this decision when you really still had a chance to win the game on uh, your last drive. And I question the decision of Bill Belichick and the uh, team there that makes those decisions. Your thoughts? Yeah, so the idea of benching Mac Jones, their first-round draft pick from three seasons ago in favor of uh, Bailey Zappi, who has shown flashes in the previous year where you know Mac Jones was on the bench uh, last season or he was injured and Bailey Zappi came in showed some flashes in the pan, and fans got excited about what the possibilities could be. You don't put a a quarterback in for the final drive in the game, especially when it is still very much winnable. I, I think at that point, you basically stay with the quarterback who's been playing the entire game, or if you wanted to make that change, you make it at the end of the third quarter. Give the backup or the, the fresh quarterback a quarter to work with, give more of an opportunity than just one possession to try to go out and win the game when you haven't been playing all game long because it's very hard to come into that situation at the highest amount of pressure in the game and expect to perform and perform well. So I, I think it was a misstep, and as a result, this is the Bill Belichick and the Patriots are now off to a 2-8 and eight start, which is the worst... Uh, a record for Bill Belichick since he's been in New England. It ties his first season in New England for that worst start to their campaign. So I think this is kind of, you're seeing a team that's has a lot of issues in that roster, Brock. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I think, you know, by all accounts, uh, Bill Belichick as of today is going to be probably with the New England Patriots for a little while. Uh, he's, he's, I think he's going to write his own ending, uh, but he didn't help himself, uh, with this decision. I don't think. And I just want to mention to, uh, new England Patriots offensive uh, coordinator was visibly angry with Mac Jones on the sidelines at one point, which was publicly caught on camera. And for me, having been a former athlete myself, I think those conversations of that level of aggression need to take place off the field of play because the media in today's world is ruthless. And I think there's a time and a place to show your, your frustration. And to me, it was a bit too far from the offensive coordinator of the new England Patriots. Well, and it's also too, this is very unlike the bill Belichick regime where everything is closed under lock and key. You don't see and get any sense of what is happening in what are, what are the athletes, the coaches, everyone is thinking it's very much, we, we say very little, we uh, show very little, and we keep it all internal. This was something that it was kind of leaking out. Maybe there's an opportunity for an old offensive coordinator of New England who just got fired from the L.A. Raiders and Josh McDaniels to come back home for a reunion and 
kickstart this offense again. I don't know, but uh, it's uh, it, it certainly does not look good in New England. You wanted to profile another uh, game on your uh, that you you took in. You have time for one more game, Brock. So which one did you want to highlight? This this uh, Detroit Lions game was the one that that really kind of snuck up on me. The de- uh, the Detroit Lions won uh, 41-38 over the Los Angeles uh, Chargers. This was a real good game. It was one one that I wish I tuned in more in-depthly. It was one on a last um, drive uh, field goal. It was really good. The Detroit Lions seemed to really take charge in the early parts of the game, and then the Chargers came back. This was one that I wish I had put on my marquee before the San Francisco 49ers game. It was a real entertaining way to end the game. And, uh, you know, some of the other games were kind of duds over the, over the weekend, but yeah, those are the ones that I would say I would highlight for you. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. The Detroit lions are for real. Dan Campbell has a great team with great players that they all believe in what he is preaching and they're coming together in a really weak division, the NFC North. I, I think the Detroit lions have an opportunity if they, play well against some of these tougher teams because I think the Chargers is always a bit of a weird test. I, I They never show up when the games matter most or they're never great against strong competition that it's really hard to gauge how good a team is when you play the Chargers. There's a lot of talent on it, but I want to see the Lions do this again, put up 40 points against a team that you know, is going to be seen more as a playoff team or at least win win well against another playoff team, maybe a Philadelphia, maybe a San Francisco, maybe even a Dallas. Just prove that they are there, they belong. Uh, they're not quite there yet, but I am getting on, on board with the Detroit Lions as much as that hurts me to say as a Chicago Bears fan there, Brock. Yeah, it's it's tough, and I, and I would say to you, Alex, that you know, it, you can only play in the division you're aligned in. And yep. so it's not your fault as an organization that your division is weaker, but therefore you need to take care of your business. And I think that's where people kind of get stuck on the, yeah, but they're only playing in the division that that's weaker. And, and that's to your point of like, show me what you got against a team like uh, Philadelphia. Show me what you got against a team like the Dolphins. Show me what, you know, there's a bunch of, situations like this but at the end of the day you can only play in the division you were assigned to and it's not your fault as an organization but it puts more pressure on you to take care of your business when you need to absolutely brock thank you so much have yourself a wonderful day you as well okay that was brock richardson with the sports chat coming up after the break tech company humane has launched an ai pin don't know what that's all about well guess what sean priest is going to be here to fill you in on all the details You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Last week, the tech company Humane unveiled their much-anticipated AI pin. This is a standalone device and a software platform. Sean Preece has the details on this new device, and he joins me now. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm not too bad. So, Sean, 
Take us through this. What is the point and the purpose of this AI pin? Wow, we started off with a hard question there. What's <laughs> the point of it? Um, well, actually, the, the, the basic and simple answer is, have you ever wanted to pin a smart speaker to your lapel and walk around with it? But the more serious answer is, this is the first hardware specifically designed to make use of um, AI. You know, everything, everyone's been talking about AI, chat GPT, open AI, even Microsoft's Bing. Um, and this is the first hardware we've seen that will be powered, if you like, by AI, artificial intelligence. It's very exciting. Now, first off, I want to clarify, I wasn't trying to degrade the uh, the AI pin. I was trying to go for a poorly <laughs> timed uh, pun with the, the point on the pin, but... Oh, I enough. missed it. Oh, that was good. <laughs> It was good until you thought I was just really uh, being mean to the AI pin that I know very little about. Okay, so expand and elaborate on this. What what are some of the features you can do with this pin? You mentioned it's all designed with AI. What are some of the things that you can do with it? Okay, so um, some of the features they demonstrated so far, and again, this is pre-release at the minute. Um, basically, you can make phone calls with it. You can send messages with it. Uh, you can show it uh, a packet of food, for example. This is one of the demos. So they showed a packet of, I don't know what it was actually, and said, how many calories are in this? And the AI was able to recognize the object and tell them how many calories. And then they said, uh, I'm going to eat this. And it kept track. And at the end of the day, you could say, how many calories have I eaten? Or how much protein have I eaten? Anything like that. Now, these are all very... I'm going to say actually limited features. These are features we've sort of seen in either smartphone apps before or specific skills maybe on smartphones. So this is nothing really new. And going back to your initial question, that the purpose of this, it's all about the interface. So this is something you simply wear on your shirt or anywhere really. It is a small um, square device and you can simply interact with it. It's totally screenless. It has a camera, a microphone, and a cool little projector for projecting images and a speaker. Um, but you interact with it simply by speaking to it. There are other gestures you can do in front of it as well to activate things. But the point is, there is no visual display on this. So it hinges solely on the power to understand you. And again, we're coming back to AI, the large language model, the ability to talk to technology just like you're talking to a human. No need to think about what you're saying and how you're saying it. You just speak as you normally would and the technology will figure it out. So that's the key point when we're talking about this new, it, it, it's almost a new uh, platform. Mm. You know, it's, it's almost an evolution to the smart speaker and you could argue an evolution to the smartphone. So what it's actually capable of at the minute, I would say actually isn't that impressive. Um, making phone calls and, and sending messages, the ability to recognize objects, take video, um, various things like that. Nothing groundbreaking, but what is really impressive is the way you achieve those tasks, the way you talk to it, the way it talks back to you. It really is quite, uh, it's quite cool. And so you kind of mentioned this is, has to be treated like a new platform instead of just a new device in a, a kind of ecosystem of what you would already have, like a smartwatch or something like that. Mm. Does, 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is not uh, uh, kind of something you would be pairing with a phone? This is it's on its own thing then? It's completely standalone. Yeah, absolutely. It comes with its own voice and data contract as well, um, which we'll get to when we get to the price of this thing. Yeah. So it is completely standalone. It isn't like anything else we've seen so, so far, like smartwatches, which depend on a connection. Well, mostly, not entirely, but depend on a connection to a smartphone. This is completely standalone. There is no app store for it is another thing they're they're keen to really emphasize is that the AI will figure out what you want to do. So maybe in the future, you could say something like, you know, um, describe this object with be my AI or, you know, uh, what's my balance in my bank on this account or whatever. There's no need for us to actually go through, open a specific app. AI will decide, okay, how do I achieve this task and what's the best way to do it and go off and do it as again it's it's the the power of ai which makes this kind of special interesting so it based on on kind of how you described in terms of the uses how you're initiating some of these features asking it questions you know doing gestures things like that seems like it's going to be quite power heavy are, are you having like a little heater on your chest if you're wearing it as like a lapel pin like how is the battery <laughs> life and the battery power on this device it's fine you just wear a big backpack all the time and you get all day battery <laughs> no 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 you don't so um so there is a battery built into the actual let's say the the core device itself the actual pin um <clears throat> sorry but the, the, there is a battery booster, which is magnetized to the back, and that's actually how it attaches to your clothes. So there's a magnet at the back, which holds it on. And that is also a what they call a battery booster. Basically, it's a battery pack. And you can swap them out during the day. The initial product comes with two uh, additional battery boosters, as they call it. So they are promising all day battery life. How often you would have to swap that out? Uh, they do come with a, a carrying case that charges these battery boosters. So, um, yeah, hopefully, I, I'm expecting better battery life than you would get, say, off a smartwatch or something. Um, but it should be pretty convenient to actually just change your battery and carry on with your day. Sean, are you telling me the AI pin isn't actually a pin, but using magnets to hold on to your lapel and your clothes? <laughs> Well, see, here in the UK, I have no idea what a pin is. I would call it a badge okay. or a brooch. Okay. I, 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 uh, the pin thing is new to me, but I, I sort of, I'm guessing that means I was expecting it to pin through or have a little safety pin on the yeah. back. But, but no, it's more high tech than that. <laughs> okay. uh, the company behind this are actually all um, ex-Apple employees. So you would expect a certain flair when it came to the design and that and uh, a magnetic clasp. It does sound very Apple-y. And you know what? I'm I'm being a bit mean. I'm being a bit unfair of this device. I I think I'm more. Just, it's the skepticism I have on this, and so I'm I'm, I'm picking and, and and prodding my different points. It's just I think because something like this is so unique, so innovative, as you described, that it, you have to basically rethink how you interact with technology with this device. You did mention though that uh, the this comes with its own data plans. And so let's ask the, the big important question, how much does it cost and how much are those plans? Oh, let's not spoil it all, Alex. <laughs> We've been having a lovely discussion. We don't have to bring money into it. 
Yes. So the actual device itself is six nine nine. I believe that's US dollars, six hundred and ninety nine. But it does require a monthly subscription uh, to what is called Humane um, Connection. I believe it's powered by T-Mobile Network, and that is twenty four ninety nine a month. So um, I tell you what, to be an early adapter and be on the cutting edge is definitely not cheap. But um, you're, I'd, I've got to be honest with you there, Alex. I mm-hmm. think you're right to be skeptical of this because a lot of people are getting really carried away as they are with AI. I mean, we get so impressed by something and there's no denying that AI itself is really impressive, but it's still early days. Um, I am excited myself. And I think this has got a lot of possibilities for us in the disabled community. You know, a screenless device, especially if you're blind or visually impaired, Mm -hmm. a smart speaker, for example, is a beautiful, accessible piece of kit. And this user interface of just using your voice, again, could be incredibly useful. And because of the evolution, you know, smart speakers uh, that we're currently using, to be quite honest, look absolutely uh, ridiculously look like morons compared to AI. And I think, you know what, I with the camera built in as well, with the ability maybe to get some sort of AI assistance and object recognition, OCR, who knows how far this could go. This is a generation zero product, but I've got to say, as a new species, as a new platform of gadgetry, yeah. I'm excited by it. And I'm definitely going to keep an eye and see how this goes. Yeah, and I, I think, too, if you look at it in, in terms of something that it could really have an impact on the disability community, as you mentioned, especially someone who is fully blind, not having that screen built in, that you don't have to worry about trying to d- get screen reader or, or some other like screen reading device to be able to manage that. I think you take the screen out entirely, it could be a huge win, a huge boon uh, for people who are blind. And if it's, in fact, that you're building this platform for every user, and it just happens to be have that built-in accessibility, that is hugely positive. But one thing, Absolutely. too, people have been saying that they this may be kind of a first step in a bigger project that Humane is working on. So what is that project? Well, yeah, I've heard this as well, but it doesn't really go into much detail about what this bigger picture is. Now, as I said, this is the first hardware we're seeing powered by the next level AI, ChatGPT AI. So that could be one thing. This could be the first in a long line we're going to see an evolution of technology where we're just talking to it like it's just anybody else, another human. Or, which I suspect is more likely, is that this whole not having a specific app to do a task, Mm. and it's the whole AI being able to decide and get the context of what you're asking and being able to independently say, okay, I need to use... I'm going to use the term plugin. So this specific plugin for my, you know, whatever bank you like to complete that task. I think that's the bigger, bigger picture. It's again, looking at the, okay, it's cool that I can send a message and I can do all this with my voice in a really easy to do way, but it can do so much more. And we're just seeing the very start of this AI capability, especially in this form factor. I think we could see this really taking over. Absolutely. Now, Sean, before we let you go, you got to let me know what's coming up on Double Tap today. What are you guys chatting about? Oh, uh, now you've got me with a really... De- oh, today we are talking about <laughs> Stephen Scott has been, as he always is, 
deciding to buy a new Mac computer. But which one did he go for? He wanted an iMac, but we managed to talk him out of that because I had to remind him he can't see. So he's discounted that, but he's been going back and forth between the new Mac M3 and a previous version. So we're going to get the final verdict of what he plumped for in that epic saga that is uh, Stephen Scott buying a computer. Believe me, it goes on for a long time. But it's cool. <laughs> Very good. Sean, thank you so much. Uh, have yourself a wonderful day, and we'll chat next week. Thank you so much. See you later on. Yeah, that was Sean Priest, one of the hosts of Double Tap on AMI-audio, and you can listen daily at noon. And you can also follow the Double Tap team on Twitter or X at Double Tap on Air. Double Tap on Air. Are you interested in being part of a live studio audience? Well, AMI has an opportunity for you. Kelly and Ramya are taping a special episode on Monday, November 27th. They are looking for 50 individuals to be a part of the audience. So if you live in Toronto, in the area, and you want to participate, please email info at ami.ca. Info at ami.ca. Space is very limited. So be sure to put in that. And you also get a Kelly and Ramya gift bag if you do attend. And the names will be entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards value at $500 each. There's also going to be five $50 Tim Hortons cards up for grabs. And so for a chance to win those great prizes, you must be a part of that live studio audience on November 27th. The taping will air on a future date on AMI-tv. And so, once again, to confirm your participation, email info at ami.ca. Hope to see you there. Coming up after the break, we have a roundtable discussion with Elizabeth Moeller. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Elizabeth Moeller, Rogers Communication, has launched a very interesting and innovative 5G uh, program for Canadians. Tell me more. Sure, yes, they have. So Rogers has a program, Connect for Success. They are offering reduced wireless rates, say that five times fast, and free 5G phones to low-income Canadians, hoping to benefit about 2.5 million Canadians um, nationwide, which is pretty impressive. So I wanted to chat about that today. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how you think initiatives like this contribute to addressing digital inequality among low-income Canadians. And I wanted to start with you, Remy, if that's okay. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think that uh, initiatives like this are obviously incredible, ideally, and on paper, if we can get it done. Uh, because obviously, Elizabeth, we've had so many different kind of scenarios play out, um, backlash play out against giant corporations, tech corporations, uh, carriers, internet carriers, phone carriers, where we we know the kind of discrepancy, the kind of gaps that we our population is facing, different parts of the population, different uh, kinds of um, income support or lack thereof. And we know that there's just so much 
varying experience, at least financially, at the least financially for people to be able to kind of take part in something or the other. And sometimes it's as basic as internet, as basic as data on your phone, as basic as, you know, all of these things that a lot of us take for granted. Yeah, absolutely, Rami. I 100% agree with you. And I think that, you know, it's it's always that if we can get it right, because especially when it comes to the phone and cell phone space, like Canada plays one of the highest in terms of uh, like fo- personal phone rates in in the world. And, and it's it's shocking just how expensive we are, especially when you compare us to other uh, countries, uh, especially even like the U.S. You see all the plans. Oh, it's like unlimited for like $20 a month. It's like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're paying 60, 70, 80, over $100 sometimes, depending on what your plan is. So finding something that you can really target it and really allow access to low-income Canadians to actually have reliable internet. I mean, it's, it's a huge impact on what you can actually do because it's no longer just a luxury. It is a necessity. Yeah, History, and we often... Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, just wanted to say, and we often point fingers directly at the corporations, right, directly at Rogers and Bell and and all the, and TELUS, I guess, like the big three, uh, to say, like, what are you going to do about this? Because they're, the power imbalance is so frustrating. Yeah, and this is one of them saying, this is what we're doing. And, and they, they've also invested in, in trying to get more data and, and service to subways and underground, especially in, in Toronto. So, Nishreen, what, what do you think of this, like, uh, this initiative? When I heard about this, I was just hopeful that there's no gaps in between. There's no um, catches. Uh, I, was, I was just wondering, what's the catch here? I mean, are some people, even when they're low income, um, are they not qualified at a certain point because they're receiving money here or they're parents have an high income and that makes them unqualified or something like that. Because I feel like when there's movements like this, not everybody who has a low income is qualified for something like this. So I'm really hoping that it's not going to be like this for Rogers. So I'm going to be positive and say, this is a great move and this is a great step. And I'm hoping that this is just going to work out like that. Yeah, we're, we're going to be positive all around. Positive vibes, everybody, <laughs> on this roundtable. Elizabeth, I'll give you the last word. The last word. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I just want to pick up on Ms. Reed's point because it did say that people who qualify are going to be individuals who are in specific federal and provincial income assistance programs. And so I want to pick up on that to say that there's a lot of people who would be considered working poor that aren't qualifying for income assistance, but who still are, are not making it and are, are kind of um, trying to scrape by. And we know that's becoming that, that gap's becoming wider and wider. So I worry for those folks who may not be a part of a quote unquote program, but who still need the support. Absolutely. Elizabeth, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. See you tomorrow. Yeah, see you tomorrow. Nizreen, have yourself a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. And Ramya, before I let you go, let me know what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Ramya. Well, one of the things I'm looking forward to chatting about is um, the government's recommendation, so the Canadians' government's recommendation, uh, on what kind of assistance or support you need to be considering when you're traveling. So emergencies when traveling abroad, and that's what Danielle McLaughlin is going to talk about when she joins us for Know Your Rights. That sounds like a great episode. Ramya, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Have yourself a wonderful day. 
Have a good show, Alex. Yeah, that was Ramia Mutin, the co-host of Kelly and Ramia. And you can check out Kelly and Ramia 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Coming up after the break, as the colder months roll in, how do you maintain a healthy lifestyle? Brian Van Praet shares tips on how to maximize indoor spaces this winter. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. It's important to try to maintain a healthy lifestyle, but when the weather gets colder, the outdoors may not be all that appealing. Not to worry though, because there are many great ways to stay active indoors. Ryan Van Prate has ideas and suggestions for how to maximize indoor spaces this winter. Ryan is an inclusive sport activist advocate Sorry, and he's here now to chat more. Hello, Ryan, how are you doing? Fine. Uh, not too bad. Okay, so Ryan, why are what are some sports or activities that people may not have considered participating in come wintertime? Yeah, I think one of the big things is to maybe steer away from the notion that you have to do the, the, the go down the beaten path. Mm. <laughs> I think really it comes down to whatever... Uh, motivate you when it's dark and gloomy. Um, there really is no right or wrong way. It really is about what's going to get you up off the chair and and moving around. So don't stress about doing the latest fad. If that's motivating to you, that's awesome. But you know what? Just do whatever gets you gets you going. And I know that's a big broad answer, but um, usually that's that's the the right answer. Whatever gets you moving. And in terms of some the ones that are a bit more unique in this uh, kind of in the winter months, like what are some that come to mind for you, for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's some interesting ones that are out there these days that are, um, you know, pickleball is one of the big things, group exercise classes. Um, there's a lot of indoor stuff in, in the wintertime uh, in, in Ontario and in Canada. So even things like ax throwing or indoor golf, um, uh, yeah, any anything that is indoor that is going to get you um, get you excited. So it could be an individual activity like going to your gym, uh, or it could be a team activity. You know, something as tried and tested as as curling. Uh, you know, the, the 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 sky's the limit really when it comes to uh, what is out there. Again, it's whatever piques your your interest. And what tips do you have for people who? may not be aware or may not know of what may be available in their area for them to participate in or, or get engaged with this winter? Yeah, fantastic question, because that's often what really holds people back. So I think thinking of it in broad terms. So, you know, if you have a specific sport or specific activity that you really want to do, that's almost a bonus. But a lot of people don't. They're just they're not sure where to even begin. You know, I think looking at whatever your city or municipality may offer, going on their their municipal website and just looking at their recreational opportunities, um, seeing what recreational centers might be nearby. Uh, you know, convenience is, is half the battle as well. If you have, don't have to travel halfway across town, that's going to be helpful. What gymnasiums are in your area? You know, there might be specific gyms, you know, CrossFit gyms or powerlifting gyms, but something as broad as a YMCA 
or Good Life or, you know, Joe's Fitness Shack, <laughs> wherever you live. Something that offers that that broad variety that allows you to, um, you know, be varied because being varied in your activities also helps you stay motivated and and want to continue uh, throughout the winter time. So I'd say start broad strokes and then narrow it down. Uh, one last good piece of, of advice is go to Facebook, check out uh, Facebook groups for, uh, you know, recreation groups or activities that are in your area as well. Let, let's say someone has identified a potential gym or activity that they they would like to be involved with, but they don't know how to get going and, and take that first step to getting involved. What tips do you have for someone who's maybe identified something, but doesn't know how to proceed forward? Yeah, I think, you know what, exercise in general for most people uh, is not super appealing, right? I think a lot of people do it because they know they have to, you know, it's, it's a maintenance thing that, you know, they want to grow old and healthy. And so the best piece of advice is really, if you have friends or family that are doing an activity already, you know, the old saying misery loves company, but it really is true because it's, it's almost, um, you know, an adult version of a play date, <laughs> you know, you call up, Hey, Alex, you want to go to the gym? And Alex is like, well, I don't really want to, but if you're going, I guess I, I will go as well. So maybe it's a healthy form of peer pressure, but honestly, um, that, that can be a, a really successful secret is if somebody else is doing something, um, that even remotely interests you, then that's a good way to, to create momentum. Because if it's left up to our own devices, uh, we can easily talk ourselves out of getting out of the, uh, you know, getting up off the couch. So yeah, I say, find a friend. Um, that's, that's going to be your, your first big key to success, I think. And obviously too, uh, there's, there's always, you know, uh, individual needs, especially when we, we talk about uh, folks with disabilities getting engaged with different environments and different activities. How can self-advocacy and, and uh, um, kind of just identifying your needs in these spaces, how can that kind of play a role in it too, especially if you have, let's say you're, you're bringing your, your friend with you, how can that kind of uh, continue on and play a role within that? Yeah, advocacy, honestly, uh, for, for persons with disabilities is that huge extra elephant in the room, right? It, you know, it's hard enough for um, anybody to get out there and exercise, but if you have any sort of challenge, um, that's just going to make it 10 times harder. So I think identifying the activity that you want to try and then identifying what, what the skills or the physical um, requirements are of that sport and, or activity, and then determining what your needs are, right? If it's a, a visual thing, um, maybe you need to switch the equipment to something auditory. So it's, it's just a, a sense of problem solving, um, but reaching out to experts, people that, that are experts in that sport. Um, if somebody is really interested in, in whatever sport they're interested in, they're, they're also interested in getting other people involved. So they're going to be really great resources to brainstorm with you to say, you know what, I, I maybe can't participate or I don't think I can participate because I can't see. Um, so how can I, you know, how can I adapt? And yeah, there's usually an answer and it's usually fairly simple. And oftentimes it does come back to having that friend, having that extra pair of eyes or ears, um, just that buddy who can, provide that emotional support, but also sometimes even that physical support and that uh, logistical support. And another thing too, especially when we start talking about gyms and specialized activities indoors, there can be a huge cost associated with it. And it can be quite a barrier for, for many people. You had some advice on uh, ways that people can look and explore opportunities to help make those costs less impactful. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's a very common question. So I think um, 
you know, looking at the actual gym or the facility and, and just part of that advocacy and saying, you know what, I, I, you know, maybe on a financial uh, limit, do you have any sort of subsidies? Do you have any sort of two for one discounts? If I bring a friend in who, you know, is going to be helping me, but also participating alongside me, you know, is there any sort of discount or deal, which oftentimes there are. Um, your local service groups, Lions Foundations, Optimist Clubs, sometimes they have uh, money set aside that if you went and said, you know what, I, I really want to join this gym, but I'm really financially strapped. Is there any assistance? Oftentimes there are. Um, and then sometimes looking for just, uh, you know, different grants or different subsidy opportunities, uh, even sometimes outside of Canada, right? There's international um, groups out there that that can help. I'll make a plug for one that's helped me in the past called the Challenged Athletes Foundation based out of the U.S. And it they give out grants to for this exact reason for people all across the world. If you need that extra hand up. Um, you can apply and, and oftentimes you can successfully get a, a few dollars to go towards your, your sporting goal. So a lot of the times it's just doing a bit of sleuthing and a little bit of advocacy as well, but usually there's, there's a deal to be had. That's that's great uh, advice for anyone who's looking to, who may not have considered, because I certainly uh, never kind of considered that as a uh, possibility before to help manage costs because costs can always be very impactful. Uh, finally, sure. yeah. what is your uh, kind of what's the best way to ensure that when you go to a gym and you have these experiences, that it's a positive one? I think, uh, again, fun is key. You know, if you don't have a specific goal like myself, you know, you're not training for a race or whatever, you're just doing it for healthful reasons. Uh, making sure you pick something that you enjoy, not something that others tell you you need to do, because if you're doing it uh, to create a healthy lifestyle, fun and variety is really the key. Um, you know, doing something different is okay. Uh, it keeps your interests up. It keeps you wanting to come back for more. It keeps you curious. And it also challenges your body in new ways, which is also very important. So don't, yeah, basically take it easy on yourself. Don't, don't feel the pressure or the, or the peer pressure to do the fad thing. Just do what's fun and do what's going to keep you going out consistently. Um, that is the secret word is consistency. So Ryan, thank you so much for this. This has been fantastic. Have yourself a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much. That was Ryan Van Prate, who is an inclusive sport advocate. And that's all the time we have for the show today. I want to thank all the guests we had on. Michelle McQuig, Denis Boudreau, Amy Amanti, Sean Priest, and you just heard from Ryan Van Prate. And coming up on tomorrow's show... We have a House of uh, Megan Gilmore stopping by to talk about a House of Commons committee that has made recommendations for veterans' employment strategy. That and much more tomorrow on Now with Dave Brown. Take care. Have yourself a wonderful day. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.